We're going to skip the church at Smyrna this morning. Don't worry, we're not ignoring them. We will come back to Smyrna because Smyrna and Laodicea, the second church and the last church, are very parallel. They're kind of two opposite sides of the same coin. One church does well with an opportunity. The other church doesn't do so well with the same opportunity. And so we'll treat both of those churches in one sermon. The, the last sermon in the series will deal with both Smyrna and Laodicea. So, so we'll circle around back to them. The order of these churches is largely geographic because you get there and you make your way around Asia Minor and it seems like they were ordered in the book to just follow the order that someone would take in going along and delivering these letters. Um, so we'll uh, deal with those two uh, both at the same time, which means that this morning we will be looking at the church of Pergamum. Verse number 12 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you do not, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. For I have few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. You taught Balak, to be, who, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In 52 BC, Julius Caesar was fighting the Gauls. And he was beginning a siege of the city of Elysia. This was going to be kind of the final nail in the coffin of the Gauls who were rebelling against Caesar. But in order to get to Elysia, his... his um, uh, his troops needed to cross the Allier River. And in order to cross it, they kind of needed to build a bridge to get across. Well, you can imagine building bridges is hard. Building bridges when there's an army attacking you is a little bit harder than just building a normal bridge. And so Caesar and his troops were trying to get across the river. And they'd come to a spot where they wanted to cross the river, and the enemy troops would be right there across from them. And so they'd move. And the enemy troops would follow. And everywhere they went, the troops would stay there and would stop them from building the bridge they needed to cross the river. So one morning, Caesar stops for the night in a place with, with a lot of forests, a lot of trees, a lot of places to hide. And that night, as he sleeps, he divides his force. Or not as he sleeps. He's not sleep generaling. Uh, as, as the enemies were sleeping, he divided his force into one group with a third and one group with two-thirds. And that group, that smaller group, the third, hides in the forest. They conceal themselves overnight. The next morning, Caesar and the remaining two-thirds begin marching to another place on the river to try and get across. But their enemies across the river did not see the one-third that remained behind. As Caesar marched, he had the troops spread out just a little bit farther than normal. So they take the same amount of space for the whole army, but that space was filled with one-third fewer people. And Caesar 
marches down the side of the river, and his enemies, not wanting to, him to be able to build a bridge, start moving along with him. And over time, he kept moving farther and farther down the river, and as soon as he gets out of sight, what's going to happen? The troops he leaves behind jump out and quickly build the bridge to cross the river. The Gauls were fighting a war, but they were fighting a war against the wrong people. They didn't know where they were looking. They didn't know who they were fighting. And it led to the destruction of their city because they didn't know who they ought to be fighting. Certainly those troops that followed Caesar would have been competent to fight him. They would have been competent to stop his advance. They would have stopped the bridge. But it doesn't matter how good you are at fighting if you're fighting against the wrong team. Here we have the church in Pergamum, church that is a mix of good and bad. I mentioned that in, the, in these seven churches, uh, three are good and bad, two are, mostly, are, are all good, and two are all bad. And so here we have one of our mixed churches. This church uh, is in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum is a significant city because it was a home to the regional Roman leader, the proconsul, he would have been established in Pergamum. It was the home of a large library, so it was a center of learning, one of the three biggest, uh, basically, university towns of the era. It had several temples. The most notable temple was the temple to Asclepius, the god of medicine. And this temple was found in Pergamum. And also, as home of the proconsul, uh, the Roman proconsul, Pergamum was a hotbed for Roman emperor worship. This is one of the, the primary uh, religions that the early church had to deal with, was the worship of the Roman emperor. He was to be treated like God, and therefore, not worshiping the Roman emperor like God was considered treason. It was punished severely. So, that's Pergamum. Notice in the introduction, it says the angel of the church at Pergamum. So that's who we're writing to. But who's writing? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In each of these texts, it uses different descriptors for Jesus, highlighting different aspects of his character, all drawn from chapter number one. And here it mentions the fact that it is he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is significant for a couple of reasons. As I just mentioned, uh, this Pergamum was the center of the Roman government in that area. And the symbol of the authority of that Roman proconsul who, who ruled in uh, Pergamum would have been a sword. And you can imagine if you are a member of the church at Pergamum, one of your great fears, according to this text where they're being persecuted, one of your great fears is going to be that Roman proconsul, the person who yields the sword, the person who rules over this city. Yet, in describing Jesus as he writes to the church at Pergamum, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the sword. It's kind of a good reminder to the church at Pergamum. Yes, Rome is scary. The proconsul carries a sword. Jesus carries a bigger sword. So there's this comfort here that Jesus is ultimately the one who has surpassing authority over the Roman proconsul. However, there's also a challenge in this description. Because at the end of the letter, 
Jesus is going to remind the church that he has the sword and he's coming and he will bring destruction on his enemies. So the church better make sure they're not his enemies. And so the, the start of the letter, the description of Jesus, both gives them hope that Jesus will one day come and he will do what is right and he will, re, he will uh, protect his people, he will judge evil, but it's also a challenge to remember that Jesus is coming again and he will judge evil and you'd best not forget that church. So it's both a comfort and a challenge to the church. So what does Jesus describe about this church? First, the good. The good is that they hold fast to the faith. What's their situation? The situation in the church at Pergamum is found in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who has kill, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. So two times in this verse, it's mentioned that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. What's this referring to? Well, um, it's not 100% clear, but it's probably a mixture of factors. Like we said, the Romans were headquartered here. The imperial cult was headquartered, uh, headquartered here. So the religious group that was the most dangerous to the church at the time would have been centered in Pergamum with the imperial cult. Um, at the same time, uh, like I said, there, there was this temple to the god Asclepius. Asclepius was a god of medicine. So at this temple, the way it worked, the temple's kind of on a hill in town, and people who needed to be healed would go to the temple of Asclepius. And the way they would handle it, and you're not going to like this if you're sick, is you would go into the temple, and you'd have to sleep on the floor in the temple. Well, Asclepius was also the snake god. And so the temple would be filled with non-venomous snakes. And the idea was that by sleeping on the floor of the temple, overnight these snakes would come and they'd crawl all over you while you were asleep. And Asclepius, the snake god, would then heal you through these snakes crawling over you. So if you want to complain about the American healthcare system, go ahead. But at least you're not sleeping with snakes, uh, unless you count the lawyers at the hospital. Uh, so, so that... That's kind of the world that they lived in. This would be a major source of the tourism because people are coming in to worship at this temple. They're faced with opposition. In fact, today, if you look at most symbols of medicine, many symbols of medicine will have a rod in the middle and a snake crawling up the rod. That's called the rod of Asclepius. It's, it's a reference. Now, in America, we got messed up because someone back in the early 20th century used what's called the caduceus, which is different than the rod of Asclepius. This is, this is a little trivia. I don't know that it's super helpful in applying this. But the caduceus is the one with the wings in the snake. That's something, it doesn't actually stand for medicine, but someone used it wrong, and then we just decided, hey, let's go with it. Well, I'd hate to admit a mistake. Uh, so this is Pergamum, a center of idolatry. There are other idolatrous religions there. All religions, including idolatry, are prone to nominalism. If you go to a Muslim country, certainly there are zealous Muslims. But there are also going to be a lot of Muslims who, yeah, I'm Muslim, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Some of you may have encountered some of them, where certainly they're Muslim, but they're not going to make a big deal out of the finer points. Uh, anyone ever meet a nominal Catholic? They'll swear till they're dead that they're Catholic, but they'll go to Mass twice a year, right? So every religion is prone to that. 
Yet here in Pergamum, as a center of idolatry, this isn't just nominal idolaters. Idolatry is part of the very fabric of the city. And that's where the church dwells. So it is the place where Satan's throne is. What happens living where Satan's throne is? Well, they face persecution. They face persecution. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even though Satan is ruling. And then giving us a little more specifics of what happens, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you where Satan dwells. So this is a church that's facing persecution even up to the point of martyrdom. So there is a person in this city, Antipas, who is killed for his faith, yet the church remains faithful. They are opposed by Satan. What, how does Satan oppose the church? Uh, I think it's easy for us to think about Satan opposing the church and killing the church and trying to destroy the church like that. But I think even when Satan opposes the church through, through oppression, through persecution like that, the reality is the danger is much deeper than simply the church being killed. The danger in a place like Pergamum, where the church is being oppressed, is that they not hold fast to the faith. Notice he, he's not saying that the, the warning is not to not be persecuted, not to avoid persecution, but, but to, to hold fast to the faith. That's what they're doing well. So they're facing persecution, but they are faithful. Satan is a deceiver. Satan, part of his methodology throughout the Bible is deceit. He uses deceit to pull people away from God. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden. How is Satan going to tempt them? He's going to subtly corrupt the words that God said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's going to urge them to become like God. Is that what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No. They became less like God. It did the exact opposite of what the serpent told them would happen. And so... Satan uses deceit. How about Job? Another place where Satan is very active. Tells God, Job's not going to follow you if you're not blessing him. And so Satan comes in and he gives all this, uh, he oppresses Job. But ultimately under this is the lie. And that's what God is reinforcing, reinforcing to Job at the end. It seems in Job's eyes like God has abandoned him. It seems in Job's eyes like God is not good. Satan works in Job's life to convince him that God is not who Job thinks God is. Satan says, Job just worships you because you're generous. So I'm going to take that away and Job's not going to worship you. Satan is trying to convince Job that God is not who God is. He's deceiving him and he uses persecution. He uses sickness to do that. Jesus in the wilderness Again, Satan comes at him with lies about God. He gives him an easy way out, basically saying, don't trust the Father's plan. Do your own thing. Right now, declare yourself to be God. Right now, throw yourself from the temple, announcing that you're the Messiah. Right now, do it. Don't wait. Don't go through the cross. Don't do it the hard way. Do it the easy way. Satan persistently tempts by deceiving, by saying, 
The way of following God is hard. I have an easy way. Adam and Eve, it's hard for you not to eat the fruit of the tree, so instead, why don't you eat it and be like God? Job, it's hard for you to endure suffering, so why don't you just give up and curse God? Jesus, it's hard for you to suffer on the cross, so why don't you just give up? And so in Pergamum, Satan's doing that exact same thing. He's making it look like it's not worth it to follow Christ. The oppression of the city of Pergamum is coming at this church, and, it's gonna, and Satan's goal is to convince them it's not worth following Jesus. It's too painful. Go do something else. But Jesus in this letter says, you're still steadfast. You're still holding on to your faith. You're still holding fast to Christ in spite of this outside persecution. Our tendency is to take the easy way. In, in landscape design, there's even a term for this. It's called desire paths. If, if you are mapping out like a big area, and you've got sidewalks and people are walking on the sidewalks, over time, something develops called a desire path. And what that is, is someone is walking and they're going this way. The path is here and they're going to go this way. And then they've got to turn and come back this way. What's going to happen? They're going to see that and they're just going to walk right across the grass. And they wear this desire path. And so you've got a sidewalk that kind of curves, and then you've got a path in the dirt next to it because everyone cuts the corner because no one wants to make the extra walk. So oftentimes you find these really strange-looking sidewalks because the landscapers eventually said, well, we're not going to stop it, so we might as well build a sidewalk right across this path. Or uh, in, my, in one of the colleges I went to, they just start giving you a bunch of demerits every time they see you walking across the path because we naturally want to go the easier way. And Satan in persecution, all he can do is make it look like following Jesus isn't worth it. And the church at Pergamum is steadfast. Following Jesus is worth it. They can resist the persecution that comes from outside the church. They fight against Satan's lies by knowing the truth about Jesus. This, uh, this here reminds me of many texts that we've already covered throughout uh, our time in this church. The book of Ecclesiastes, that long view of Ecclesiastes, fear the Lord. Life under the sun, it's unpredictable, it's uncontrollable, fear God, it's going to work out. Second Timothy, endure Endure, uh, bear trials for the sake of the gospel. Hebrews, hold fast to Christ, our great high priest. This theme comes up all throughout the Bible. Hold on to Christ, he's greater. The church at Pergamum is successful in this. The church at Pergamum faces oppression, faces persecution, and latches on to Jesus and will not give up. They will not believe Satan's lies. How do we resist Satan and do the hard things we're called to as Christians? We resist Satan by knowing the truth, by knowing who Jesus is. It's exactly what the church at Pergamum does. However, they don't do great at everything. They don't do well at everything. Yet, they do well at this. They hold fast to his name. They do not deny his faith, even in the days of Antipas. They identify publicly, even though it's costly to be a Christian, even though it's costly to follow Jesus. But what do they do that's not so great? Verse number 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the church at Pergamum is doing a good job resisting oppression of the world. However, what they're failing at is recognizing the danger of corruption from within the church. They're resisting the corruption outside the church. They're resisting the persecution outside the church, but they're missing out on the problem inside the church. And he, uh, Jesus uses the illustration of Balaam and Balak to talk about this. Balaam and Balak is, is a, a rather lengthy account in the book of Numbers. We're not going to read, uh, read that account as something like three or four chapters long. Uh, but the basic idea, Balaam, the, the, the reason you might remember Balaam is the talking donkey. All right? that, that's what jumps out about the story. It's not the main point of the story. It's something that happens in the story, but it's the part that you learn about in Sunday school because uh, that's, that's just the way it works. Uh, so anyway, Balaam is a priest. He's, not a, 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 he's a prophet. He's not a Jewish prophet. He's some other kind of false prophet. Balak is the king of Moab. Israel has just gotten out of the promised land. They're wandering in the wilderness. And Moab is like, these guys are everywhere. They're growing. No one can stop them. I'm really worried that they're going to take our land. I'm worried about all the terrible things that they're going to do to us. So we need to do something to fight the Israelites. However, fighting the Israelites while they're in the wilderness doesn't typically go well for the country that fights them. So Moab, the king, the king of Moab, Balak, wants to think of another way. So what he does is, is he... Uh, basically contracts with a prophet. Says, all right, prophet, I want you to come and curse the Israelites. Right? So we can't beat the Israelites. Maybe God will beat them if we pronounce a curse on them. So if military strength doesn't work, let's try magic, is basically what the king of Moab is saying. And so he calls Balaam to come. As Balaam is coming, his donkey stops in the road. Balaam starts beating the donkey. The donkey, as donkeys often do, tells Balaam, why are you beating me? And, uh, and then begins this, this kind of odd encounter between Balaam and his donkey, uh, where God uses that as a way to tell Balaam, you better not go and curse Israel because I'm blessing Israel. You don't get to tell me to curse them when I choose to bless them. So he goes to uh, Balak. He goes into Balak, says, actually, I really can't curse Israel. Balak's like, okay, let me give you more money, and then you will curse Israel. So he says, okay. And he comes back and says, nope, I still can't curse Israel. So like four times they go back and forth, and Balaam will not curse Israel. He's too afraid of the God who made the donkey talk to him. And so Balaam refuses to curse Israel. Balak gets increasingly angry, and the story kind of ends there. Yet the next chapter starts a new section in the story of Israel. And that transition doesn't tell us that Balaam is the one who's responsible for what happens next to Israel. However, this passage does tell us that. Because what happens is that the Moabites, seeing that God was not going to curse Israel because Balaam asked them, decide to take another attack. And this way, uh, what they do is they send the Moabite prostitutes over to Israel. Basically, the idea being, if God won't curse the Israelites because we ask him to, why don't we just get them sinning and then he'll curse the Israelites because they're sinful? 
And this, apparently, according to this text, was Balaam's idea. So God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. So Balaam says, you know what, let's just send them prostitutes and they'll get themselves cursed. And that is exactly what happens. So Balaam, working with Balak, sends these prostitutes over. A great plague comes on the nation of Israel. Um, and and the, the, they're punished, they're judged by God for sinning with the prostitutes. So this is the example that's given here of the problem in the church at Pergamum. They have this group, the Nicolaitans. So we see references Balaam and Balak. You have some, here who, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Nicolaitans and those who follow Balaam aren't two different groups. The Nicolaitans are the people who are following the teaching of Balaam. That's an illustration of how the teaching of Balaam is present in the church. So what's happening in the church? It appears that within the church there is corruption that's being allowed to exist without being taken care of. Just like Israel could not be affected by the world outside. Moab couldn't do anything to Israel, but Israel could do something to Israel. Moab could not beat Israel in the wilderness, yet Israel sinned with the prostitutes. They are the ones who bring the consequence on themselves. And so here we have this interesting setup in Pergamum. They're being oppressed. They're being faced with, with uh, opposition. They're being persecuted. They're being martyred. Nothing to worry about. Just a simple, you're being faithful on that. That's good. However, what is scary to the church in Pergamum? The corruption from within. It is natural for us to be afraid of what happens to the church from the outside. But the greater danger to the church is the corruption that comes from the inside. So here, the church at Pergamum is faced with martyrdom. Nothing to worry about. It's not a big deal. Matthew 16, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell, Satan's throne. See the parallels between them. Satan cannot destroy the church. He cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. Yet the church at Pergamum, in spite of being able to stand against opposition outside the church, was not standing against corruption within the church. The Nicolaitans aren't even the ones being confronted in this text. He's not even dealing with them. He's dealing with the church saying, don't let corruption happen inside the church. Don't let what's going on inside the church destroy the church. You're safe from the outside. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Yet, inside the church, you can fail. Inside the church, you can destroy yourself. The church is more susceptible to corruption than it is to attack. What are the greatest dangers that the church faces today? I, I think I would be likely to answer this poorly. I know other people answer this poorly. If our answer to what are the greatest dangers to the church are things like the homosexual agenda, anything having to do with persecution of the church, um, whatever it would be, the secularization of American society, all these dangers, I think they're the first ones we think of. If you listen to a Christian radio station, they're the ones that we're going to get talked about the most to be afraid of. But the reality is those dangers aren't dangers at all. The dangers come from within the church. 
The danger is not that we're going to be persecuted. We've been promised we're going to be persecuted. We're not risk of it. It's going to happen. The true danger that can destroy the church is when the church allows immorality to fester within itself. That's where the church is at risk. So what is the greatest danger to the church? It's not politics. It's not persecution. It's not laws banning books. It's not laws affecting who we can counsel and how we can counsel. It's nothing about where we can build church buildings. It's nothing that we look at in the news and think, oh, this is what's going to destroy the church in America. No, those things can't do anything to the church in America or the world. Persecution will not destroy the church. However, churches destroy themselves all the time when they allow corruption to fester within themselves. And they stop even being a church because the wickedness is internal to the church. So what is the greatest danger to the church? We don't know who we are. We, we don't know what it means to belong to Jesus and to owe him everything. We think being a Christian is primarily a cultural identifier rather than being the very essence of how we live our lives in every way, top to bottom, inside and out. What's the most dangerous thing in the church? The fact that we think sin is found in others and ignore that sin is found in ourselves. That will destroy the church. If all we can do is sit in this building and point at the world around us and say, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, and we never look here, that will destroy the church. Congress can't. Judges can't. Presidents can't. But we can. If we can only look at the corruption outside of us, where we know there's supposed to be corruption because it's a world hostile to God, and ignore the corruption inside the church. What's dangerous to the church? Living for this life, fearing the world being more than being salt and light in the world. What's dangerous? When we come to church and look only for encouragement and what we already believe, rather than conviction about the things that we're wrong about. The church is at most risk, not from forces outside of it, but from forces within it, from apathy and corruption in this body. So what must we do? Therefore, repent. Repent. Recognize we must be fighting against sin within the church, not just in the culture. If not, I will come to you soon. Normally, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, we think that's a good thing, right? We, we want Jesus to come soon. We long for his appearing. The whole creation groans and travails. We're looking forward to his appearing. This is a warning. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to war against the oppressors. The question is, are they going to be with the oppressors and being warred against? Or are they going to be those who the lamb comes to protect to care for. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, the, the things that will be given to us, hidden manna and a white stone, frankly, those are a little unclear what they exactly are. Uh, there's a couple options that I think, well, that sounds reasonable. Um, some think that, that the hidden manna 
refers to, I believe it was Jeremiah, uh, hides manna in the Ark of the Covenant when the, um, I'm mixing my empires up, Babylonians came in and sacked Jerusalem, and it's hidden away. The Ark of the Covenant is lost. The manna is there. So that interpretation says that this hidden manna refers to the fact that one day the Ark of the Covenant will be found, worship will be restored in Jerusalem, and Will those who endure will get to, to see that. So this kind of eschatological viewpoint, this idea that, that one day God is going to come and make th- all things right and we're going to be a part of that. I think that's reasonable. All the explanations are more or less like that. It's a good thing that we're getting manna. What exactly is it? Not sure. The white stone with a name written on it, the, the most persuasive option that I saw for that one was that it is an uh, admission ticket to a meal. Okay, so the idea being that this is your entrance and that this is based on background, background study that this was how you would get into a, a prestigious event. You'd have this stone and so basically you enjoy the marriage supper of the lambs, that sort of idea. The specifics, I don't think, change the meaning of this whole text, really, right? It's pretty clear that there is a reward, there is a benefit. It is worthwhile to repent of this, to conquer over this. And so, the encouragement then is to remember, glory is coming. We must endure suffering. And the church at Pergamum does this. They endure suffering well. We must endure suffering, but we also must resist corruption until the glory of Christ comes, until that day comes when he comes in with a sword. That hasn't happened yet. So what does this mean for us as a church? Certainly we endure persecution, but frankly, that's the easy part. We know it's going to happen. We ought to endure. Yet the church at Pergamum fell short and maintaining the purity of the church. And certainly there's elements of that that are doctrinal purity. We ought to know what the Bible teaches. We ought to defend what the Bible teaches. We ought to have fences around the church so that we know this is what we believe. This matters. We're going to stand up for truth. Someone comes in denying the Trinity. We're not just going to be like, oh, but they're a nice person. That's okay. Uh, we're We're going to stand strong for the authority of Scripture. We're going to stand strong for uh, the, the cardinal doctrines of the faith. But here, the emphasis is less on that doctrinal purity and more on the ethical purity because this group, the Nicolaitans, is bringing uh, idolatry and also sexual immorality into the church. And so the church can be corrupted by allowing sin to fester within its walls. And so church, we must be actively engaged not merely in looking at the world around us and seeing where sin exists in the world around us, but looking within the four walls of this church, looking within our own hearts and seeing, God, where am I sinning? Search me, O God, and know my heart. And asking God to reveal sinfulness in ourselves because you, as a sinner, are more dangerous to the church than the most powerful army in the world who wants to fight against the church. God never had a hard time beating a big army. Never was a struggle. Israel, time and time again, no matter how big the enemy, always won. But what ends in Israel getting destroyed? They're worshiping idols. They're not trusting God. They're not behaving justly. They're not following the law. 
that destroys Israel. That's what ends in Israel's captivity. Israel would have been fine if Assyria or Babylon or even the Romans or the Greeks came against them. But that was never their problem. Their problem was corruption within. So church, I urge you, be less focused on the corruption outside the church. Be salt and light in the world. Be an evangelist, certainly. But be more concerned about the way that the church itself is corrupting itself.